Hi, I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I write about the movies here at The Times, and like most anyone these days, I also find myself watching more than a little television. Between movies and TV, a frequent topic of conversation among my colleagues here on the entertainment staff of the paper is how tough it is for any of us to just keep up. So this show is about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. Building up to the Emmy Awards on September 17th, I sat down with Times Awards writer Glenn Whipp and Times television critic Lorraine Ali to take a temperature reading of this year's races. From returning shows like The Americans, Game of Thrones, and Atlanta, to first-year shows like Glow, Barry, and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, we try to get a sense of what the newly emboldened Emmys really mean. And then we'll hear Times television writer Yvonne Villarreal's interview with one of the stars of The Crown, Matt Smith. Lorraine, what, for you, what do you see as maybe like the importance of the Emmys or their sort of relevance, especially given the sort of cultural currency kind of peak TV era that we're in? Do you feel like the Emmys properly reflect that? I do. I feel like this year, particularly, the Emmys reflect that. But I, I do think they have uh, more relevancy at this point or they're more relevant at this point than the Oscars are just in terms of reflecting what we're actually watching, what is actually, there's a buzz, but not just on a critic level or not just on an industry level. I think they're a little more populist. But I do think that they have more cultural currency, but, you know, because they aren't the Oscars. I mean, I I just don't, I do think they mean more than they used to mean now that television has become so much more of, um, I think, reactive to what's going on culturally. But then is that, in some ways, it's like the award season paradox that the Emmys seem more relevant because a show, let's say, like Game of Thrones, which is watched by millions or tens of millions of people every episode, those are the kind of things that they're awarding. And yet it is that sort of like elite prestige factor of the Oscars is the thing that makes the Oscars the Oscars and also is the thing, strangely, that I've come to like appreciate and sort of enjoy about the the Oscar process. So that in some ways it's funny that there's this like there's this weird sort of irreconcilable difference between the two. Lorraine, maybe let's dig into that comedy category a little bit. To me, at least, that the shows that are nominated there, Atlanta, Barry, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Glow, those seem much like kind of fresher shows than, say, what's in the drama categories. And what do you make of the sort of those shows that are in that are nominated in the, the comedy category? I think the comedy category is the most exciting to me because it is the freshest. Um, and I feel like, you know, many of the things in there uh, took risks, you know, and they aren't. Like Atlanta, in many ways, is it even a comedy? I mean, you don't even kind of know what to call it at some point because each episode is so kind of different from the last one and they're not always funny. Um, one was like a horror story. Yes, exactly. And so I think it's one of the more exciting categories. But I mean, even Blackish, you know, if you look at like the comedies that were, you know, we were looking at like five years ago, this list is really exciting. Even if it's Silicon Valley, which at this point is like, it's an old show, but it's still a great show. So it's a good year. It's a good year for these nominations showing what's new, what's kind of upended what was there before. I know Barry's a show that you mentioned that we haven't really talked about here on the podcast before. Lorraine, what is it that you like about that show? I think that's one that has been a bit of a surprise for people. And it's funny, it's a show that at least, like say on my Twitter feed and thing, I notice 
people are still sort of catching up to it. Like it's kind of got it, it kind of a low key like building momentum behind it. Well, it's funny because, you know, it's HBO, right? And HBO, at one point, if it was an HBO show, you're like, it's a must watch. I have to watch it now. But I mean, so much has come out with Amazon and Netflix that I feel like people were kind of like, oh, it's an HBO show. I'll get to it. (laughs) There's these other things coming out on Netflix that I have to watch right now. But I think it was kind of a surprise in the way with particularly with Henry Winkler, which I think his role in there, the premise of it is. A guy who comes to, who's played by Bill Hader, who comes to Hollywood as a hitman to kill someone, but then he decides he wants to be an actor. He discovers Henry Winkler is an acting coach. I think it was just sort of surprising that uh, I think the Henry Winkler piece kind of did it. I totally agree on the Henry Winkler front. I think that is going to be, I think he's going to win. And I think it's going to be just the great, one of the great moments at the Emmys this year. I know you you interviewed him, didn't you, Glenn? Yeah, yeah. And, and what was what was that? Does he have some sense of what this like? Did you get a sense of what this moment means to him? Oh, it means everything to him. You know, this is when I interviewed him. The nominations hadn't come out, and he's run a very good campaign. He's popped up in the right places. He's been doing interviews. But as Lorraine mentioned, his character is so good on this show, and he is so sweet and so funny. And initially, you just think this is a vain acting coach, and it's just going to be kind of a one-note thing. But then there's a love story involving him that's just so funny and sweet. Um, And this is his sixth nomination. He's never won. He got three nominations for, for playing the Fonz. I think people just can't wait to give him an award at this. Because, you know, how many people have those kinds of moves in their careers. It's such a great thing to see somebody at his age killing it again on a, with a new role. And now, is there any sort of preference given by the Emmy voters to a debut show like Barry or, say, this first season of Glow and a sort of a returning show like Atlanta? Because to me, it's so interesting to hear, Lorraine, you talk about this second season of Glow, and it may be like, oh, the show may not win for its first season, but maybe as it develops and into its second season. And that certainly is one of the biggest differences between, let's say, the Oscars and the Emmys, is that shows can come back, and that in some ways, like, voters can acknowledge when a show develops, when a show grows, but then you have the sort of opposite side of that, where then you get the umpteenth nomination for a show, or a show like Curb Your Enthusiasm that you feel like there's not a lot of enthusiasm for, and yet still it's almost like dutifully nominated. That Glenn, that, that's so the way that shows come back, like the returning element of television what does that wrinkle of, like, the Emmy process mean, do you think? Well, I mean, with the Emmys, you have to get nominated within your first two or three seasons. It's very hard after that, no matter how good you are, to plant that flag. That's why a show like The Americans, which is going off the air now, um, six seasons, right? Mm-hmm. I believe so. I think that's right. So six seasons. And in previous five, I mean, this is one of the most acclaimed series on television. It has won two Emmys, both for Margot Martindale. It's won nothing, uh, aside from those two kind of small Emmys. And it's up for a number of categories this year for a final season that was a really strong finish for the show, I, I thought. And so it's up for drama series. It's up for lead actress, Carrie Russell, 
Matthew Reese for lead actor, but it hasn't won much. And so is all of a sudden, are people going to vote for it? A lot of that precedent matters. And I, there's a strong sentiment that the Americans should win something before it leaves um, the Emmys, but I don't know if it will. Well, you know, it's interesting because when you look at all the nominees up for Emmys this year, one thing that's kind of consistent is second season shows that were better in their second season than their first, in, at least in my opinion, and perhaps in the voters' opinions. But Handmaids, Stranger Things, well, okay, Westworld, we can't really put it in there. But Atlanta, you know, all of those second season. The Crown. The Crown, right. And and all of those, uh, you can, well, and look at Glow. You know, usually that second season is, it's never as good as the first season. I mean, that's really tricky. And I think it's interesting that all of these kind of came back. But I I love that you're, you're like the one person in my life that has said The Handmaid's Tale second season is better than the first. <gasps> who are you hanging out with, Glenn? A lot of people who feel like, oh, they're just wallowing in this misery and, you know, uh, it's just too dark. And Well, I, I will say, I think that that is something of a prevailing sentiment. But Lorraine, maybe you can sort of stump for the show a little bit and tell us a little more about what it is that you like about the fact that they sort of doubled down on the kind of bleakness of the show as they went past the book. With the second season, I don't actually feel like it was more bleak than the first season. What I love about the second season is it shows you how that Gilead came to be. It shows you what led to this dystopian government, this, you know, life in a dystopian, horrible place. And I think it, it was chilling in that it shows all the parallels of what we're going through today. Was that more bleak? I don't know. Was it more terrifying? Yes. For sure it was more terrifying. Um, but, you know, the thing about Handmaid's Tale is just these beautiful moments in there that where there is hope, and people can laugh at that, like, hope in the Handmaid's Tale? There is. There's these, like, moments, like, when they're holding the baby or when, you know, they see, um, I don't even know, a little piece of music comes in. There's There's these glimmers of, like, there's something else out there. There's something worth fighting for. And I think the idea of we're not beat yet, there's something worth fighting for, we can fight back, and that's where we're headed now, and that's what it looks like the next season's going to be, you know, the resistance. I definitely think it had more fight and kickback than season one, and I didn't see it as more bleak. I saw it as more terrifying, but I like where we are now. But does that kind of raise almost like a... a existential question about the nature of television itself. Like for you, what do you think people, whether it's Emmy voters or just kind of general audiences, what do people want from their television shows? Like, do they want the sort of like spectacle of a Game of Thrones or even a Westworld or the sort of like the week-to-week procedural aspect of say something like the Americans or I think to some extent even the way you're talking about Handmaid's Tale? What What do you think it is that sort of people really want from their television? I think it's a combination of those things, right? I mean, if you can watch, you know, dragons slay the bad guys all in one fell blast of fire, that's pretty satisfying. But then, you know, when you need your fears of the real world to play out in front of you in someone else's world, then you watch Handmaids. And then if you just need, you know, the uh, kind of almost background noise of a procedural or whatever it is, an ID show, you can watch that. I mean, I think it's a fine, there's a 
there's a balance, right? Or not even a fine balance. There's just like pick and choose what you need to get through where you are right now. And I think that's what it is. And there's so much out there to do that with that we're kind of in a great place for that. And now, do you think that the Emmys represent the best of television? Like if, you know, again, to come back to the Oscars, the idea of they've had to create this popular film category to somehow, you know, open up the kind of movies that get represented by the awards are the kind of shows that are celebrated by the Emmys essentially art house television? Are they sort of like the, you know, the spotlight or moonlight of television? Or do they represent something bigger than that? And now, maybe to wrap it up, a year from now, when we're talking about next year's Emmys, are we going to be talking about sharp objects? Ooh, I don't know. People are kind of angry about how uh, that ended. Well, I don't know when this show is going to run. I don't know, because people are a little miffed about the pacing on it and, you know, how it ended in the finale. I don't know. I mean, as we talked about The Handmaids, it's too bleak. I'm kind of pissed off about season two where people were saying... I think Sharper Objects has got that real, it's divisive in a strange way. So I don't know. About but a year, that. a year from now, where people still hold on, even hold on to those feelings, I, I guess in some ways I'm, oh, I I'm so curious about the yeah. process and the fact that like a full year from now, this show that is like now the movie everybody wants to be talking about. And yet are we even going to remember it a, a year from now? It kind of depends on what's nominated or what comes out, what limited series air between now and the end of May. I think though, there's a lot of people are going to want to give Amy Adams an Emmy because Amy Adams has never won an Oscar. And that's such a big thing with the Oscars is that Amy Adams has five nominations, but she's never won. Here's an opportunity to give her that stepchild award. (laughs) Isn't that the runner's up prize? (laughs) Yeah, you know. And now we'll take a break. This is Chris Gofford with the Los Angeles Times. I want to share some exciting news. Bravo is turning Dirty John into a limited TV series starring Connie Britton as Deborah Newell and Eric Bana as John Meehan. It's a scripted dramatic series based on the Dirty John podcast and my newspaper series. A tangled story of love, family, deception, and survival. Catch the new series coming soon, only on Bravo. And now we're back to hear Yvonne Villarreal's interview with Matt Smith. Hi, I'm Yvonne Villarreal with the Los Angeles Times. It's my pleasure to welcome Matt Smith on today's show. Smith is a first-time Emmy nominee this year for his role as Prince Philip in the Netflix royal drama The Crown. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. <laughs> Congrats on the Emmy nomination. Well, that's very, very kind of you to say. Thanks, how, for, thanks for remembering. How does it feel? Uh, it's nice to be invited to the party, frankly. Do you know what I mean? It's nice. It's 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 nice to be invited to the party, and it was, and it's nice that uh, it's my final year, um, and it, it feels uh, a great privilege. You like the sound of Emmy nominee in front of your name? Is that what happens? Yeah. Really? It's all it is now. No, it's not. That's <laughs> until silly. you win it. Yeah, then it's <gasps> Emmy winner. Uh oh. And the Emmy loser is, um, yeah. Well, no, you know, look, I'll take that. It's better than a kick in the knackers, as mm-hmm. we say in England. Well, I mean, you were in a unique position um, in playing a well-known figure, particularly in England, 
but who is often overlooked. Talk about getting into Prince Philip and what was your perception of him before starting the series and how did that change for you? Well, it changed quite significantly, actually. I, I, I sort of think a lot of people in England have, a, and it generally around the world, have a slight misconception about Philip. And I think mine's changed quite significantly. It often happens when you play a character that you sort of fall in love with them to a certain degree a bit because you learn to understand them and you learn to really appreciate the bits of them that are disturbing or dark or selfish or problematic because they're the interesting things that as actors you like to get into and, and explore. Um, and, you know, in England people think he's a bit of a doddery old fool who says the wrong thing, but I happen to think he is a rock star who has lived his life independently under great un, under the duress of this quite mad family and these mad rules and managed to carve out um you know be a be a bit of a lone wolf uh, which was just really fascinating to play and i find him very funny and i actually i think that's one of the reasons they they've endured and stayed together is that um she finds him very funny and charming probably yeah and cool and you <laughs> and know cool. and yeah yeah what are your thoughts on America's fascination with the royal family and how does it compare to England? Do you know, I don't know. Uh, you know, and I pose this question back to you. Mm-hmm. Why is it we're so intrigued with the British royal family and not the Swiss or the Danish? Or I actually don't. I mean, it, for me, it's the fairy tale, but I imagine yeah. it goes beyond that for some people. But it's 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 very interesting. Um, I, you know, is it the fact we all speak the same language? I think, is it her? There's a lot to do with her and the fact that she's been on the throne for so long, which I don't think will ever happen again. Um, but, um, uh, you know, it's, I, I also didn't realise the sort of appetite for the royal family that there was in the United States. And then particularly with now with the sort of Meghan effect of it all, I bet that's gone up. Did you watch the wedding? Worse. So you you got up and watched it. I got up. No I way. Set, I set the yeah. What so what and I time? Wasn't, I wasn't even at home. I was staying at a friend's house, like no out of town. Way. And I was like, please, I'm gonna be watching this. I don't want to wake you up. <laughs> did you watch it? I did watch it, but I didn't have to get up. I mean, so what time did you have to get up? Like four in the morning, dude. Yeah, that's tough. I watched it because I, I love all that pomp and ceremony that surrounds it and. Uh, but how did you watch it? Was it just you? I, no, I did watched it. Did you make it, your tea? I watched it with my mum and my dad because they were up. And, uh, and then we went for lunch. And it was, yeah, it was like, I kind of loved it. Mm-hmm. You know? Did you, did you get teary-eyed? No, I'm not. I'm not a teary person in any way, shape or form. But like, what are your views on, I mean, I would imagine being on this show. I mean, you have your own fame and you were part of a big fandom with Doctor Who. Yeah. But what has being part of this show and and portraying their level of fame made you think about that? Yeah, that's, again, that's a very good question. I mean, it's there, you know, they are anomalies in the world. And Megan now you sort of go, what a life she's going to lead. It's it's not it's different. It, it, you know, it's like being a politician. It, 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 there's a level above being an actor. You know, even if you're Tom Cruise or you're Brad Pitt, yeah, you're not in the royal family. Do you know what I mean? Like, they can't go anywhere. And it's not even about selfies and photos. I don't think people really even want to ask them for that. 
they wouldn't approach them for it. Do you know what I mean? Because they know there's this other thing. And I think it's, I think that level of fame must be very, very difficult. And you're born into it. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, but, you know, I think it also gives you the opportunity to do a lot of good. And I think someone like Megan, and the great thing is, look, in seven seasons time, Megan can play herself. Exactly. Right? She can be in it. <laughs> she can make a return to acting. Yeah. And if she doesn't get an Emmy nomination for that, then I don't know what else you've got to do because that she's her. There's no. nothing more that she can do. <laughs> nothing more. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, this was initially a project. You were kind of like, I don't know if I want to. Yeah. I don't know if I want to be a part of it. No, what an idiot. <laughs> but you had the luxury of having all 10 scripts. So talk to me about what you read in those that made you think, okay. Well, I loved him and I loved the battle in him. I loved the sort of inner conflict, um, which I think if you watch the two seasons is you, you can see he's really battling with his position as man. And sometimes he makes very selfish choices and makes the wrong choice. But I was intrigued by that. I was intrigued by the fact that he didn't want to kneel to his wife, by the belligerence, by the maleness, you know. And I thought those things were, were exciting to explore. And just the quality of the writing, the quality of the cast, uh, the quality of the directors that were associated with it. I thought, you know, this, this um, yeah. Interesting, you know, interesting. And um, as an actor, quite exciting, I suppose, really, because it's, um, yeah. I mean, I've realised that he's, he's not come out of it with great popularity from people I meet sometimes, but I love him, you see. And I think, hopefully, when you watch it, you realise that deep down he does truly love her, but that it's, you know, that he's at times being foolish. But, um, and they, you know this isn't a spoiler, they are still together. Right. They did endure, they did get through it. There is something that has connected them. And I think what's interesting about it as a piece is that it presents them universally in that every, yes, they are the royal family, but also this, is, this could be any other relationship where someone makes a mistake or someone is feeling usurped or someone is feeling like they don't have a voice or, you know what I mean? And and that there are universal truths about it that, that are, are not exclusive to the royal family. Well, it's, there's powerful moments in the silence. Mm. Talk about working opposite Claire Foy mm. for these past two seasons and what she brought out of you. God, it's been a dream. She's such a good friend now, Claire, actually, as well. I mean, I think she's such, she has such diligence and precision and brilliance as an actor and is someone that I greatly admire. Uh, professionally and indeed personally and you know we're lucky we got on so well because we spent so much time together on set and and um, you know often that means there's a lot of downtime and you're doing this or you're doing that so we got to hang out which which I enjoyed greatly um, and um, yeah you know it was just it was a joy really from start to finish. How did it challenge you the crown as an actor because I from people I've talked to, you like to improvise or you're yeah. very, you're very much and a perfectionist too. Did this, was that sort of allowed here no. or did you have to fight that yeah. instinct? There's none of that. No, no, no. It's, you know, you say what's on the page and nothing else. Um, but you know, uh, in, in fairness to Peter Morgan, the writing's so good. You often don't need to, it's constructed and often such a good, uh, a sign of great writing is that it's, it's easy to learn and his is just really easy to learn. Um, so 
you were lucky and, and, and you know the scenes are brilliantly constructed and then I had Claire who offers so much as an actor so it was you know I feel very lucky to be here and be nominated for this award really because it's it's a testament to the things that are around you ultimately I know you've you've had run-ins with Harry since the show has been out yeah do you like does he say anything about your own I couldn't possibly comment because you know it would be remiss of me to Uh to um but he at least knows you're on this show to exchange. that is about his family. Yes, I'm pretty sure he does. I think, I think that's pretty certain. But um, uh, yeah, he's my favorite royal, Harry, apart from Philip. Why? Those two are my... Because they're just... They're the, they're the mavericks. They live by their own rules a bit more. Um, and I just think they're, they're the coolest. Have you driven past Buckingham lately? Yeah, I have. I quite like that now. I go, I know what goes on in there. I know what happens <laughs> to those guys on the doors and they bow their heads. You know, it's, um, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's why I love London. You've got all these bits just around. Surrounding that, yeah, you, yeah, you're constantly just, and you're moving through it all the time. Um, but it's, you know, it's definitely renewed my interest in the royal family. Mm-hmm. I think it's been quite good PR for them, actually. Well, yeah, and I mean, everything has sort of come together at, like, season two happened just as the announcement of the the engagement happened. With, and the Megan and, and the wedding. And, and the new era. And yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. Absolutely. Well, how, like, if, if you could have your moment with Philip, I mean, you don't have to tell me everything you tell him. Yeah. But what do you think would be one would of the I things say? you say? I don't know. I'd probably get quite nervous and intimidated and not say very much and sort of bumble at him. I, um, I just think he's great. And I, I sort of like the way that he's gone about his business over his life. You know, there's a few indiscretions, obviously, but hey, he's a human being. And um, I just say, well done, mate. He slammed it. Now can we talk about your great nights out in London? You know, he, like, he drove a black cab. Yeah, he got a black cab and he drove it round London. And uh, he used to just drive around London in this black cab. And do you know what I mean? There's little things like that that he does that you just go, ah, oh, you're a cool dude, man. And, um, you know, I'd just go, mate, should we go for a drink? Well, he's 96. I was going to say, you got to find out how he takes his tea, not yeah. go for a drink. Well, I don't know. I reckon he still might have your whiskey. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. No. And good luck to you on the big night. I Congratulations. Will I see you there? Yeah, you will. Okay, great. But you don't get to vote, do you? No, I don't. Well, this has been a waste of time, is not it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. I'll see you next time. Okay, bye.